pray as we um, begin the, the preaching portion of our worship service. Well, Father in heaven, we have your word and it is truth and it is good. Your word is about you. But in speaking about you, it also reveals things about us and our need for a Savior and our Savior's love for us. Lord, I pray that your word would do its miraculous work in us through the power of your Spirit. And Lord, this would be a gift, and we pray that you would grant it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as George mentioned, uh, this Lord's Day, this Sunday, we are starting a series, a preaching series on the book of Ruth. And Ruth is one of the most delightful, but it's also one of the most bitter historical stories in the whole of the Bible. It recounts the events in the life of a woman named Naomi, who was moved out of the land of Israel during a time of famine into enemy territory, and then who lost everything that she had. We get to see how the Lord redeems even the life of her dead husband and sons after they died. And we see the Lord's work of redemption and restoration written into the lives of Elimelech, of Naomi and Ruth, and actually even into the people of Israel and some outside of Israel who the Lord graciously adds to his loving and eternal covenant. And why would this matter for us? We too, like Naomi, are in a covenant with the Lord. By faith in Jesus, we are in covenant with God. We are God's covenant people together, together with Naomi, with Ruth. You and I, we make up the one bride of the Lord. We are in a marriage covenant with him. And we, like Naomi, we have seen a number of the promises which God has made as part of that covenant. We've seen a number of those promises fulfilled. And yet, we live in a world which is sometimes marked by pain, and sometimes marked with laughter, sometimes marked with feast, and sometimes marked with famine, sometimes marked with tears of joy, and sometimes marked with tears of laughter, of sorrow. And we've been told of how it'll all work out. We've been assured of this by our Lord. But sometimes it is hard to see how the part of the story that we are currently living in works toward the ending which the Lord has sworn to bring about. So we know that the Lord will return and remove all sin and suffering from the face of the earth and that we will dwell with him in perfect holiness and joy and satisfying worship and that it will be just a pure delight in his love. That is how you know the story will end. But now you face financial struggles. You feel incredibly hurt or betrayed by somebody who you love dearly. You feel like you will never be holy, never be free from the fight against your selfish sin. And you are constantly maybe one event from being overcome by panic. You can hardly imagine living in the sweetness of the end of the story because the part of the story that you're living in right now is often marked with bitter things. So we will together listen to the Lord himself recount an important story which he worked invisibly in. No miracles, no signs or wonders to bring about redemption and blessing 
not just to Naomi and Ruth and Elimelech, but also to the entirety of his covenant people. Now, I want to be clear, God does not promise to do for you what he did for Naomi or Ruth. He promises that what he did for Naomi and Ruth, it was something that he actually did for you. He brought about the throne of David, the throne which Jesus inherited and reigns over all things for your good. He brought that about, not just for Naomi's good, but for your good. Not only just that, but he promises to do better than what he did for Naomi and Ruth for you. The blessings which he gave to Naomi remind us of the mercy and power and control of history of the Lord to bring about eternal blessings, not simply things like bread and land, but to bring all his people to glory and end all our lives with fullness of joy for eternity. And so we're going to begin by reading the first five verses of the book of Ruth, and then we're going to quickly jump to reading a good portion from the book of Judges, which gives us the setting for the book of Ruth. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Ruth, Ruth chapter one. We're going to read the first five verses. Ruth one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name, of the, woman, the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Kilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And you can see here that the Lord tells us in this passage that this historical account will make more sense. It'll have a richer impact on our hearts if we can get our hearts around the experience of the people of God in the point of their history, of the history of redemption that they were experiencing. And so because of that, we're going to read a good portion of the historical book of Judges to get a feel for the weight of despair and longing which the people of God, Naomi and her husband, were in. So if you have your Bibles, you're going to turn to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. We're going to read it in its entirety. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I have brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept and they called the name of that place Bokim. 
and there, and sorry, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. They bowed down and, and they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges for they whored after the other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the ways of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. The first point is, is this. The inheritance of the Lord was incomplete. And the book of Judges has several major themes. These are kind of structural pieces that help you understand it. And the first one that I want to point out to you is the one of inheritance, this idea of inheritance. And I'm wondering if you caught this over and over, this idea of the land as an inheritance. Specifically, it was the land of Canaan, which would then become the land of Israel. And remember that this land was promised to their forefather, the forefather of the Israelites, Abraham, many hundreds of years earlier. It was the promise that God set out to keep when he raised up Moses to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery and into the land of rest. The land of Israel was to be their inheritance. 
It was an unearned gift. It was to be a holy place where the covenant people of God could enjoy the presence and love of God. It was a place to enjoy the presence of God. Now, we humans are creatures. We are finite. We're not infinite. We're not creators. We are creatures. And that means that we can be in only one place at a time. It also means that we need a place. We also, we always have to be in a place. It's one thing to have enjoyable things, but it is another thing to have enjoyable things and a place where you can enjoy them. And so you might have received a nice loud drum kit from your cool aunt and uncle. But if mom and dad do not give you a place where you can enjoy this lovely, annoying gift, you cannot enjoy it. So you may have received a lovely mountain bike with the best frame and components and suspension. But if you live in the prairies, you definitely can enjoy that bike, but you would love a place to really enjoy that bike in the mountains. And so the Lord was with the people of Israel while they were in slavery in Egypt, in the land of bondage. He was with them in the wilderness after they left Egypt and, and they finally had freedom and they could enjoy his presence there in the wilderness. But the Lord has designed us as creatures to enjoy him and be satisfied in him in any situation. However, he's also designed us to long for a place perfectly suited to enjoy his presence and love. Eden was that for Adam and Eve before they were cast out of God's presence because of their sin. The land of rest, the land of Canaan, which would become the land of Israel, was not as good as Eden, but it was to serve the same purpose for Israel, a place set apart for God's covenant people to enjoy him and worship him and know him and serve him and be satisfied in him and to rest in him. So the redeemer, which God gave to his people, Moses was a good man, a godly man, but a man whose sin ultimately made the mission given to him by God incomplete. Moses was unable to finish that mission. Moses life was taken by the Lord before he could lead the people of Israel into the land of rest. And it was specifically because of Moses' sin. So another man was appointed by God, and this was Joshua. Joshua was appointed by the Lord to finish the mission which Moses' sin prevented him from suffering. The Lord appointed another redeemer to fulfill that promise. And with Joshua, the people of the Lord took the land of Canaan, their inheritance. The Lord fought with them. He fought for them. And sometimes he fought instead of them to give them this land. The people of the Lord were able to see with their eyes this promise being fulfilled to such a point they could say the Lord has given, past tense, has given us our inheritance. However, by the end of Joshua's life, the land had not been fully taken. Israel had failed to take it. And we're told here in our reading that it was primarily because of their sin. We see that in the days of the book of Judges that they spent so much time and blood fighting each other. Worshipping idols. Forgetting the Lord. And we see that once the people who had seen the miraculous work of the Lord die off, 
that the people refused to walk by faith in God. They didn't want to have to take him at his word. The inheritance of the Lord was given to them. They did receive it. They were enjoying it. However, their possession of this inheritance of land of rest, which the Lord had given them, was incomplete. It was an already but not yet. It, it was mostly because of their adultery against the Lord. And that brings us to our second point. And that is that Israel was adulterous. And we look back in Judges 2, the first five verses, and we remember that the people of Israel were the covenant people of the Lord. They were in a marriage covenant with him. Nothing could be greater than this. To belong to the Lord in such a way that he takes responsibility for you. And he does so not occasionally, not when it suits him, not when you've been good enough, but he takes responsibility for you by a sworn oath, his sworn oath, where he sees you as his very body, meaning that your pain he treats as his own pain, your sorrow as his sorrow, his inheritance as your inheritance. And later Israel would be able to see that the Lord would even be such a covenant God that he would carry his people's sin as if it were his own taking it upon his shoulders and taking the damnation for it on the cross instead of them. They were in a marriage covenant with the Lord and there was no room for other gods, no room for other covenants. And yet Israel repeatedly made inappropriate covenants with the other nations and their false gods. In their hearts, the Lord was not enough for them, not enough to provide security, not enough to provide safety, not enough pleasure and joy. So they committed spiritual adultery. In verse 17, we read that they whored after the other gods and bowed down to them. The worship of the nations around them was more sensual than Israel's worship. It was attractive to them. It allowed for them to glory in themselves and in their might and their beauty and their passions while saying that they were actually worshiping God. They tried worshiping him in these wicked ways. They tried to have a relationship with God like the nations had with their false gods. Or some, simply they just added other gods to the list, which included the Lord. He should be happy. They very rarely outright rejected the Lord as their God. More commonly, they became polytheistic, essentially having multiple lovers. The feeling you would get knowing that your spouse was not faithful to you is a sliver of a sliver of a sliver of a sliver of a sense of how the Lord views idolatry, of his people claiming to belong to him while also serving other gods. God is more holy and more righteous than us. Now he is patient, but his anger rages against adultery. I'm going to read a portion, another portion from the book of Judges to demonstrate this. Judges chapter 10. We see how this works 
In Judges chapter 10, we're going to begin at verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried to, out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away their, the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. The Lord's anger is kindled by their spiritual adultery and he removed their rest from them. He does not answer polytheistic adulterous prayers even if they are addressed to him. However, and here is the beauty of being in a covenant with the Lord. Because of his covenant, which he swore to their fathers, he does not let them remain in their adultery. He loves them. He doesn't simply move on to another people, another covenant, another marriage. He brings them to repentance. Brothers and sisters, friends, the Lord brings his covenant people to repentance. If the Lord's word and spirit and people do not bring you to repentance. If they cannot bring you to repentance, you are not to be confident that you belong to the Lord and that he is your redeemer. Not because repentance earns the covenant or earns forgiveness or earns love. No, it's because repentance in you is one of the Lord's covenant promises which he swore in love to work. He swore to redeem you not only from the punishment of sin, but to redeem you also from the power of sin. He swears to not leave you in it because of his jealous love for his people. His oath of love moves him to bring his people to repentance. And then the most amazing use of the word impatient is now used. The Lord became impatient over the misery of Israel. Of all the things you would want the Lord to be impatient with is your misery. Though they deserve their suffering and the Lord caused their suffering to bring them back to him, he could take their misery no longer. He couldn't stand it. And so he brings them rest through redeemers. And that brings us to our third point, which is the Lord repeatedly brought rest. Over and over, this played out in history. In the life and times of this people, the cycle of rebellion, then oppression by other nations, then calling out to God, and then redemption through a judge sent 
by God. I want you to see and maybe feel this cycle. Turn to me, turn with me, Judges chapter 3, verse 7. Judges chapter 3, verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Ashtaroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, son of Kenaz. Now let's skip back down to verse 11. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. We're going to look at the next section as well. Verse 12, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And we'll see how he raises up Ehud. Now let's go to verse 30. After he's raised up Ehud as a judge to redeem the people, verse 30. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. The land had rest for 80 years. So I want you to notice the way that the Lord brings the result. He describes the result of the redemption, which he brings through these redeemers, these judges, and he calls it rest. It wasn't merely that the people who had rest. It was the land that was at rest. The inheritance given to them by the Lord was as the place set apart for them to truly enjoy and worship and serve and know and delight in him, rest. And notice that by saying that the land had rest, he's essentially saying that they were living in rest rather than simply having rest. They were in it. They were in rest. He brought them rest through judges. Often these judges were also given divine-like qualities such as unusual wisdom or unusual strength. And it was clear by these gifts that the Lord was behind these redemptions. But I want to ask the question, why was rest repeatedly needed? Why this continual cycle? That's because the rest was not lasting. Through the judges, the Lord brought redemption, but it was incomplete. It wasn't permanent. It didn't last. And one of the reasons which comes clear is that though these judges may have had otherworldly attributes, they didn't have the divine holiness to go along with it. They had divine power without divine character. We see this in the tragedy mixed into the, the, the glory of the stories of judges like Gideon and Samson and Jephthah. The people needed a redeemer, a judge, a ruler who didn't just have God's power, but also had God's sinlessness. One day that redeemer would come to Israel. But until that day, all the redemption and rest given to them through sinful redeemers would be only temporary. Another reason given is that a judge and that judge's judgeship is only temporary. But a throne... An enduring reign is what they needed. And we see that there was often peace until that judge's judgeship was ended by their death. No enduring judgeship which endured past death 
meant that the rest provided by that judgeship would also not endure. And that brings us to our fourth point, which is this. We need a king from the Lord. If you have your Bibles, I want to turn with you to Judges chapter 21. We're going to go right right to the end here. Judges chapter 21. And we're going to read verse 25. And these words are actually repeated numerous times in the book of Judges. Judges 21, 25. In those days, this is how the book ends. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It appears numerous times in the books. It's repeated. God is telling us something. Here's part of the problem. There was no king. The people did what was right in their own eyes. And we're meant to read the book of Judges and long for a king and to expect the next book would provide that. And that is exactly what God uses the next portion of history to do. But I want to look first at what the problem of being without a king. Instead of doing what is right in the king's eyes or in the eyes of the Lord, they each did what was right in their own eyes. And that's a problem because there's then no standard of right and wrong. Each man does what suits him the best. And sin affects his eyes. Now you might say, They did have a king. The Lord was their king. Now, in fact, actually in Judges 11, 27, and 28, we actually read that the Lord, not Samson or Gideon or Deborah, was the judge of Israel. And later, after the book of Ruth, Samuel the prophet is going to tell the people when they're demanding a king, he's going to say, you have a king. The Lord is your king. So God doesn't owe us a human king that we can see. We can't require that of him. We can't blame him for our sin simply because he hasn't provided one. He hasn't provided a human king for us. He doesn't owe it to us. But the Lord does know our frame. He knows we are only dust. Now, he doesn't excuse the sin which exploits our weakness but he is compassionate about our weakness. And he will provide a human king whom they can see and relate to. One who will give a more lasting rest to the land than the judges were able to give. A king with a throne which would last past his death. So the rest which God provides through that king would endure past his death. David is that king. And God will provide David to the people through the terrible and wonderful events in the book of Ruth. But King David, like Moses and Joshua and Gideon and Samson and Jephthah, is not only a man, but a sinful man. And the rest which God provided through David, this human king was far greater and longer lasting than the rest which he provided through the judges. But it was also incomplete. His throne did endure for many generations. But it was soon divided, and when it remained and it was passed on, it was passed on as a divided kingdom. Subsequent kings, didn't, sorry, subsequent kings did unify the nation to do what was right in the king's eyes. As the king went, so did the nations. If you read the next books in the Bible, you'll see this. As the king goes, so does the nation. 
But the problem was that the king's eyes were not God's eyes. They were sinful. Which is why Israel was being trained to long for the day when God would compassionately give them a king who was human like them. Someone they could relate to and see and who would sympathize with their weaknesses, but who would also be a king who was God himself. The eternal son of God would become a man. And that man, this king, this descendant of Naomi and Ruth and King David is Jesus Christ. He would be a redeemer who would not merely have divine gifts, but he would have divine character because he was also God. So that this man being also God would provide rest, which was complete and eternal. He'd also create a people who were led in righteousness, which was not righteousness merely in the eyes of men, but righteousness in the eyes of God himself. And he would not merely set aside their sin and guilt because of his compassion. He wouldn't just merely put it off for a later date, but he himself would bear the sins of his bride as if they were his own sins on the cross, demonstrating an unfathomable covenant love. He would not merely have a throne which endured beyond his death because he successfully bequeathed it to a son, but his throne his reign, his rest, which he won for his people, would endure past his death because he would rise from the dead on the third day. This is the unity, the bringing all things under the reign of Christ, which George read about in Ephesians 1 today. You naturally do not have rest. Naturally, humans do not have rest not the kind of rest that the Bible speaks of. We are slaves of sin and strangers and even enemies to the kingdom of heaven, which is the place truly set apart by God to delight in his love. Outside of a covenant with God is where we naturally begin, guilty because of our sin. And when facing God as a judge, we would be punished eternally because of our sin. But God in his rich love has provided a redeemer for his covenant people, the people whom he is perfectly, lovingly, and affectionately sworn to, the people whose pain he gets impatient with. He can't bear it. He'll allow it only for a time and only if it was for their good, only if it was to serve the purpose of him keeping that covenant which he has sworn to her. And that covenant is yours. You are added permanently to that covenant if you repent of your sin. If you see it, acknowledge it, and long for God to rid you of it, and if you trust that Jesus died for your sin instead of you and rose from the dead. God becoming man to redeem a sinful people and give them eternal joy and rest in a place where we can enjoy his love perfectly and forever. And so we're meant to read Judges and to know that part of the solution is a king which the Lord will provide. And to turn the page after the book of Judges quickly and read Ruth expecting 
that he would provide that king in the next portion. And he does just that. We meant to see that sin enslaves and that God not only forgives his covenant people, but he brings them to repentance for doing what is right in their own eyes. Brothers and sisters, wherever you are doing what is right in your own eyes, repent. Rarely does sin look like I'm doing something which is wrong and I know I shouldn't, but I'm going to do it anyways. And more frequently looks like right in my own eyes. You feel that it is good to do, so God must also feel that way. You want it, so God must also want it. You find reasons why it might be forbidden in the word of God or even wrong for others to do. But your eyes have found a way to make it okay to do. No concern about whether God is truly okay with watching what you do. Primarily concerned if you are okay with doing that action. Call on the Lord to forgive and to cleanse you and to give you his eyes, his heart. This would be him treating you as a covenant child. He brings his children to repentance. He will not leave them in their sin. And then rest in the good news that our covenant redeemer is perfectly faithful to his bride, even when she is weak, even when she is sinful. We have a king. His rest endures forever, and he is faithful and wise to bring his people through joy and through suffering to the rest which he has won for them. So watch together in the book of Ruth as the Lord shows his power over the events of the lives of men and women to invisibly bring about all those promises which he has made to his people. And watch together to increase your faith that he will keep all the other promises that he has made to his people. Now we are living further to the end of the story of the of redemption than were Elimelech, Naomi, and Ruth. We have seen more of the covenant promises of God come to pass. But like them, we wait in a world which is not at rest. We have a confidence in the end of the story while experiencing a more difficult chapter in that story. We have the same confidence as Ruth and Naomi, but that same confidence has been made sure been made more sure because we live in the portion of the story of the redemption when the promises of God were not only sworn by him, but were paid for with his own blood. He's with you now, and his love is near. He will bring you and the rest of his church, his covenant people, his bride, safely home, and he will use large events in history and small events as well to call his bride, to keep her, to hold her until he, reign, he returns to visibly reign and remove all challenges to our complete enjoyment of him. And the church militant, the church struggling against its own sin and temptation and sorrow will then be the church at rest. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you do not give us bare promises and bare commands but you have provided a history where you worked intimately with your people 
lifting up kings and knocking them down, lifting up empires and knocking them down, making promises to your people, gathering them, loving them, bringing them to repentance, giving them redeemers, and giving them more and more details of their ultimate redeemer, which you kept your promise and gave when you sent us your son. Though we are grateful that we do not relate to you as the nations relate to their gods. You have given us a covenant that you yourself personally swear. You treat us as your bride, as your body. And Lord, if it weren't for that, we would have no hope. We cling to you and you alone. Lord, help us to see this character, this promise-keeping, loving, repentance-bringing, history-controlling character. Help us to see that as we study the book of Ruth and let us cling more joyfully and more surely to Christ, our kinsman redeemer. I pray that you would work that miracle in us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.